There is an entire menu, so to speak, of treatment options for patients that have eating disorders. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunch, your host, and with me today is Dr. Vicki Burkus, psychiatrist and eating disorder specialist in Tucson, Arizona. Welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Vicki, I've heard you talk in the past about different levels of treatment for eating disorders. Can you tell us a bit about that, please? I'd love to, because this is something that most physicians aren't aware of, and I wasn't. You know, what's interesting to me as residents, we don't get very much training in in treating patients with eating disorders. And now there's a whole level of treatment that most physicians never really hear about unless they're actively involved with someone with anorexia, bulimia, or compulsive overeating. Most physicians' instinct is to send the patient to the emergency room if there's an electrolyte imbalance or if they've taken so many over-the-counter diet pills or they're, you know, they're, they're treating the alligator closest to the boat. They're going to get their patient stabilized. And yet the treatment of someone with an eating disorder is going to take time. I call the basic level of an inpatient eating disorder facility sort of the discovery part of treatment because this is where the patient really is looking at, okay, what's behind my eating disorder? And yet those first two weeks of an inpatient treatment, that patient's brain isn't ready to receive all the information. We're basically just refeeding that patient or helping them control behaviors that lead to poor judgment, disordered thinking. And so during those first couple weeks of an inpatient program, the patient's basically learning to function again around just basic eating behaviors. After that, we start looking at what therapeutically can be done in a group setting for that patient, what comes out with their therapist, what comes out with their nutritionist in terms of what's bothering them, what do they see as the causes of their eating disorder, and we start to get the family involved. Now, 30 days may sound like a long time, but it's really not to treat the level of disease behavior in these patients. So after a 30-day or 60-day inpatient program, it's very hard to expect a patient to just return to the home because this discovery portion of recovery hasn't really even approached the recovery itself process. The real recovery, I feel, starts when the patient leaves that very isolated, secure, safe environment of an inpatient eating disorder program. Mm -hmm. And so what's been developed now is sort of what we call step-down areas because I'd much rather have a patient feel that they're succeeding, 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 rather than going out and reverting back to old behaviors. And then the message is, I'm a failure, which is part of their message to themselves all the time. Right. But isn't, aren't these disorders of relapse just like substance abuse? In a way, they are, except, you know, the difference between substance abuse is people will actively go out and seek the substance, whereas food's something we need to survive. And so it's a much different mindset you know, I'll have people when we're talking about recovery say, Dr. Burkus, I can't go back and live at the beach because if I know if I go back and live at the beach, I'll be using because my friends all use. And so we have to make different living arrangements for that person who's addicted to a particular substance. I can't send someone out and say, don't be around food. <laughs> and I guess you can't go cold turkey either, huh? Right. I mean, they, an anorexic would love it. You know, the stakes are different, no pun intended, in sending someone out into the environment And what we'll do sometimes is place them from an inpatient treatment program to a residential program, meaning that they may go to school, they may have a job part-time, yet they return and stay into a healthy, safe environment where meals are jointly prepared, 
where they may have therapy several times a night, where there's 12-step meetings if they need it. And the level of support and understanding is much higher. And they may stay for six months to a year in that type of environment. Six months to a year? That's what it can take. Wow. And how expensive are these programs? It varies. A lot of these programs will have intake personnel that will work with insurance companies. So it really varies as to just like any treatment program. Mm -hmm. And what kind of success rates do you typically see? That's based on the program. Again, very individualized. But the more structure you can provide for a patient, the better the chance of recovery. You know, I've sent two patients in their 70s to treatment. This in year. their 70s? Yes. Can I you imagine this... having your eating disorder for more than 50 years? Ah, so they just didn't develop it. They've had it for their life. A lot of them have had it for years and years. Because really, isn't this a disorder that initially appears in a young person? We used to think that. And now what I'm seeing is more and more women are developing these at all ages. Now, the prognosis is better if you catch it early. So if they've been engaging in restricting or in purging or in compulsive overeating for, say, three to six months, the prognosis is much better, you know, uh, not including other comorbidity that may be going along with it, but of intervening that early as opposed to someone that's been engaging in their behaviors for 5, 10, 15 years. So why do you suppose this, this more recent trend of older women developing eating disorders? Any ideas about that? Well, it's interesting because now we're hearing about the baby boomers, and they're having different pressures. Millennium are having older children returning to the home for financial reasons. They're having elderly parents that they have found themselves in the role of caretaker, and things can become overwhelming. So their idea of, oh, my role is changing now. I don't have young children. Maybe I didn't pursue the career I thought I wanted. And it's sort of like, what is my role in life right now? What do I want to accomplish? And for some women, that can be overwhelming. They're trying to be everything to everyone and feeling that their needs aren't being met. If you've just joined us, you're listening to ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. Vicki Burkus. We are discussing the treatment of eating disorders. So back to treatment options, are there any other kind of uh, programs available to refer our patients to? There are. There's something called an IOP, which stands for Intense Outpatient Program. And this is a program that can be set up in several of the cities or areas where physicians are located. And what you look for is, again, that this may mean meeting three days a week from four to eight or five to nine, where the patient comes in, they'll eat a meal with a therapist or a nutritionist and supportive staff. They may have group therapy. They may have a family session once a week. And it's a structured environment for patients to come in talk about what their fears are, what's troubling them, trying to maintain their recovery on the outside. And this structure sometimes is crucial to recovery. What do you think is the hardest thing about treating patients with eating disorders? I think it's, it's dealing with the fear and the shame and the guilt and trying to convince someone of, you know, of their self-worth outside of their eating disorder. And so what I try to do is help them and help the family realize that if they can distinguish the patient from their disease. It will help them with their own resentments and anger because the first thing I'll hear from a family member is they're just doing this for attention. Mm. They could really stop if they wanted to. And the idea is they can't stop because the fear is so overwhelming. I've heard it said many times that eating disorders are really not about food. They're not. So what are they about? It's again that feeling of being overwhelmed constantly, of being out of control, 
of that self-loathing, that self-hatred, that not understanding what we call an interoceptive ability, that ability to distinguish feelings from thought. And so they may eat and not really understand that they're angry or they're sad, or they may have an abuse history, and the only way they can cope with those feelings of shame and guilt is through taking control over what they're eating or not eating or how they're binging or purging or compulsively overeating. They're numbing out. They're disengaging, and they're using their eating disorder behaviors to to do that. You know, isn't it really our culture to blame? I think partially. You know, but then you look at it and say, okay, how about all the people that don't have eating disorders that are in the same culture? You know, you can look at it as we know that people, more people die from anorexia, 10%, than any other mental health problem. And yet I look at it as 90% survive. And if you look at that survival rate, yeah, they're in a, a society that values thinness. And you are valued for your parents. And so when we look at people that don't have eating disorders, it sort of amazes me in today's society. Mm, that's right. That, and we don't. But I think just being female, there's a part of you that, that naturally, you know, is bought into that. So being female is certainly a risk factor. It is. Uh, are there other ones that we should look out for? I think the risk factors are, did they experience a trauma? Are they getting help after that? Whether it's a loss of a loved one, whether it's a divorce situation, whether it's an accident that leads to a chronic physical problem. Is there a history of abuse in any way, whether it's verbal? Is there a disconnection in the family? Is there signs at school that someone's starting to isolate or turn inward? Or is there someone that's taking care of everybody else, more of the codependent type of behaviors? So those are all sort of risk factors for someone that's going to focus either externally for a sense of well-being or they're turning to something else, whether it's substance or gambling or sexually acting out. I always think, um, especially of adolescent girls, the, the perfectionist girls as being at high risk for eating disorders. Um, do, do you agree with that? I do. And the, the pressure to get the best grades, to be in a relationship, to be popular, to dress a certain way, to look a certain way. You know, most anorexic females are excellent students. They're high achievers. They may be in several clubs or sports or dance or involved in so many activities that no one would even guess that they have an eating disorder. And so that's not uncommon to find that perfectionistic streak. And that's what drives them to be the best anorexic they can be. And most, a lot of patients will turn from anorexia to bulimia because they just can't follow their own rules anymore. Could you also comment on the websites now that seem to be so popular, uh, the, the pro Anna websites, maybe explain to our audience what those are. Right. These websites are developed by individuals that want to help other women or guys perfect the ability to purge or to binge or to restrict food. And what they're actually teaching and promoting on these websites is how to be the best anorexic or the best bulimic you can. And we're working through organizations like IDEP, the International Association of Eating Disorder Professionals, to educate, to help legislature ban these type of websites. And several of them have been shut down. But there's the Academy for Eating Disorders. There's NIDA. Uh, I mean, if anybody wants to know about eating disorders, all you have to do is go to edreferral.com or just type in Google Eating Disorders, and you'll come up with an amazing amount of information. 
and it's open to to all medical professionals. So anybody that wants to learn more about eating disorders, it's out there. Both good and bad, right? Right. Um, right. It, it's amazing to me. I, I didn't realize the extent of the subculture out there, this whole eating disorder subculture, uh, just like you know, drug addicts know how to cut the drugs and are better pharmacologists than we would ever hope to be, that these eating disorder patients really are quite expert in, in how to be um, starving. They are. And like I tell you, I learn from my patients. They can tell me exactly what's safe to eat and what isn't and what combinations of over-the-counter supplements or over-the-counter drinks or what to use and, and how to hide food and how to keep the secrets. And they have a million rules for themselves. So I don't want to give them more rules as a medical provider. Well, I want to thank our guest today, Dr. Vicki Burkus. We've been discussing eating disorders. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, please send your emails to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.